0: Rosemary's Hit List, the official companion podcast, is a Killer Audio Creations production. It is produced on request of Showmax. The content, opinions, and views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Showmax, Killer Audio Creations, or any of its affiliates or sponsors. This podcast may contain disturbing subject matter, and this should be taken into consideration when listening.
1: Welcome back to Rosemary's Hitlist, the official companion podcast. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht. And I'm Mvondondala. If you haven't listened to episode one or two of the podcast or watched Showmax's original Rosemary's Hitlist, I strongly recommend you do that first and come back here. In episode one and two, we discussed two aspects of this case – that may have played a role in how Rosemary was able to commit so many crimes and continue on unchecked for so long. In this episode, we're going to discuss the thing that everyone always wants to know about any serial killer or terrible murder case. What on earth was going on in this person's head? So, today we're going to explore the psychology of a person who might commit crimes like those Rosemary did. And I say it that very particular way because it's important to say that from a psychological perspective, we can't diagnose Rosemary and Lovu with anything because no one we've spoken to has actually assessed her. But we definitely can apply what we've learned about criminology and the psychology of criminals, and just human beings in general, to what we know about this case. But of course, if we're talking about psychology and mental health, it's not just Rosemary we need to discuss. More importantly, perhaps, there are a huge number of people that were impacted by what happened here. The victims and their families. Every crime has multiple layers of victims. Primary, secondary and tertiary. In this case, with so many murders, and Rosemary having such close ties to the victims and their loved ones, the victim layers have become extremely complex. Mpundo and I tried to fathom how these people may have been experiencing their grief around their loved ones' murders in the face of such horrific crimes and the ensuing legal ramifications around them.
0: I have been really fortunate that murder and violent crime in general have not been something I have personally experienced. Losing a family member unexpectedly is difficult in and of itself, but to have that grief compounded by the fact that it was caused by someone within your own family unit, I can only imagine to be overwhelming. I don't think any of us are immune to grief and the famous five stages of grief. One that I find to be the most universal is denial and disbelief. When something as unbelievable as this event happens to your family, it's not a surprise that you would have doubts. I deeply sympathize with what Rosemary's family and victims felt when the truth was revealed to them. Trust was a major element that we discussed in the first episode and Rosemary truly took advantage of the almost blind trust her family had in her. Her ability to get those around her to listen to her instructions with barely any questioning is an interesting look at the family relationships and perhaps even the emotional power she held in these relationships. Her aunt was not initially suspicious when she sought to take out an insurance policy for witness homu and neither were any of the other people she duped
1: in this episode mfundo and i are joined by someone you'll recognize from the showmax original rosemary's headlist zabanglaka is a clinical psychologist who has extensive experience working with individuals families and diverse groups of people in various provinces and settings across south africa Tabang holds a master's degree in clinical psychology from the University of Pretoria. He was a Mandela Rhodes Scholar in 2008 and a Brightest Young Mind Delegate. Tabang is also a really empathetic human being. And one of the main reasons I chose to speak with him for this podcast is because I think he delivers something unique. His insights into mental health, cross boundaries that many practitioners don't. He's not just following the textbooks. He also deeply understands that these are human beings we're dealing with, all with very diverse backgrounds. And that all adds to their mental health journey. We asked Tabang about how the family members of Rosemary and Lovu's victims may have had their experience of grief impacted and indeed perhaps even complicated by her being so close to them and then also finding out that their loved ones were murdered.
2: Grief is a process. So, I mean, when you lose a loved one, uh, you typically go through a process, you know. uh, Most people adjust around a year or two. And by adjustment, I mean you learn to grow around the pain mm-hmm. and that's if you know you have information so when somebody dies you want to know how did they die that helps you you know, have a good sense of oh i understand that's why they died and it helps that you able to bury them you had a funeral you know where they are so those things help people adjust now in this particular case where you you've lost a loved one of course you are shocked and then uh, to learn to later learn that but they were murdered by uh, somebody, you know, or they, somebody, you know, has a hand in it. Uh, that now it's like almost like a double shock. Mm-hmm. Um, you, there's, you're feeling you, one could be shocked, uh, a sense of disrespect, a sense of betrayal. So that journey that you're supposed to go on now becomes prolonged. And then there's a case on top of that. So not only can you focus on the uh, grieving, uh, you, you must now focus on this case you have to delay your your process as well so things like that complicate the healing journey of people who've lost loved ones
1: i think it is so important for us to start this episode with that in mind because although we find the psychology of the killer super interesting that interest can never be overridden by the most critical consideration here how this affected those who lost their lives And their loved ones. And that psychological impact showed up in grief, as we've discussed here. But it also shows up in a few of her family members, including her mom, who, despite insurmountable evidence against Rosemary, still refuses to accept her guilt. It's quite a bizarre element of this case, I think.
0: I can't lay judgment on Rosemary's mom for her actions and her continued support of her daughter. I don't have any professional credentials, so I can't speculate on the exact psychology of her mother's continued support of Rosemary, despite having lost a daughter and a grandson at her hands. People may point towards a mother's love as an explanation, but then where does that leave Joyce, who herself was a victim and has stated how hurt and ostracized she has felt since her sister's arrest and prosecution? It was chilling as an outsider to listen to how Rosemary described how to murder her sister and her nieces and nephews to the undercover police officer, but I cannot imagine hearing that as the intended victim who is then not supported by their family. Looking into Joyce's now forgiveness of Rosemary gives us an opportunity to reflect on the complexity of our emotions and interpersonal relationships. I personally don't know how I would react if I were in her position. Would I be able to forgive my sister for putting a price on my life? Would I believe in my mother's love if she insisted on my guilty sister's innocence? Would I ever be able to trust anyone in my family again? And what about my children? How would I explain to them that they can never see their aunt again? Understandably. This is a level of betrayal that Joyce may be able to forgive, but can never forget. It really goes without saying that Rosemary caused a lot of pain and anguish in her family. Hearing Zanella's boyfriend describe his love for her and let us in on what Rosemary took away from him and his daughter was a heart-wrenching experience. I think it's really important that in these cases that tend to become so sensationalized We also acknowledge that these are real lives affected, real people, and respect that in our coverage and conversations. Rosemary's family is also victims in this case. They have lost loved ones, and they are now dealing with the trauma of her crimes. They deserve our sympathy and understanding.
1: I really could not agree more. It's really a pretty unique case in that aspect. The perpetrator's family would usually be the subjects of shame, ridicule and blame, almost always unfounded, but nevertheless present from members of the public who seek to find outlets for their anger, while the victim's family would often be held up, supported and protected. But here we have both in one. The perpetrator's family is also the victim's family, in an extended sense at least. It really is just mind-blowing. And as Mfundo says, deserves so much careful handling and respect.
0: Rosemary came from a small village called Silobela in Mpomalanga and still has family living there. Her conviction and sentencing did not only result in a life sentence for her, but possibly a life sentence for her family too. When news of her conviction reached the village, she did not get any support due to how heinous the crimes were. With that in mind, we can assume that the family that still supports her and believes in her innocence may not necessarily be favoured by a large part of their community. Many people were angry at Rosemary for abusing her position as a police officer and killing for money. Unfortunately, in these circumstances, it isn't uncommon to find that the perpetrator's family has to socially pay for their crimes by being excluded from neighbours and former friends. They too are stained with the crime of murder, despite having never been directly involved and also being victims themselves. I can only hope that people treat these conditions with the necessary nuance that they do not seek to label the whole family with Rosemary's tainted brush and that those around them can provide them with the assistance and support they need to make it through such a difficult obstacle.
1: Rosemary and Glovu did some pretty heinous things. And whenever someone does things like this, things that most of us simply can't fathom, we throw around the term psycho, like a label that just has to fit. But, besides being a term that's reminiscent of a 1960s Hitchcock movie involving far too many birds, what does the word actually mean, and when should we be using it? Psycho, of course, is just a shortened version of the word psychopath. And although in normal conversation we sometimes use it to describe a person whose behavior is within the realm of what's commonly called crazy, that's actually very different from what a psychopath actually is. Today, in the mental health realm, it's quite rare for someone to actually be referred to as a psychopath. Rather, the traits of their behavior and personality are ranked on a scale, and you'll hear mental health practitioners refer to individuals by how far up the person is on that scale of psychopathy. This is because the fields of psychology and psychiatry have come to realize something very important and possibly a little frightening, that we all have some of the traits that make up a psychopath. And therefore, an individual has to be assessed based on how many of those traits they have. And I use the word individual and not criminal because data shows that roughly only about 7% of all people with a significant number of psychopathic traits are actually imprisoned or have ever committed a crime in their lives. The vast majority have learned to use those traits to their own and often society's benefit. They are in high-power roles, like CEOs, politicians, religious leaders, where some of the traits that make up their psychopathy actually also make them really good at their jobs. Of course, those people's personal lives may be completely different and far less healthy, but they are, for the most part, productive members of society. That knowledge suddenly makes the exclamation, he or she is such a psycho, very different, doesn't it? But don't take it from us. We asked the expert, Sabang what type of traits and or personality disorders might be present in a person who's capable of committing the types of crimes that Rosemary and Lovu did. And again, I want to be clear that this is not a diagnosis or a clinical assessment of any single individual, including Rosemary and Lovu. Zabang has not assessed Rosemary and his comments are simply general insights about the types of people and personalities who might be capable of such crimes.
2: Um, so when we think about psychopathy, you know, um, I think in the DSM, uh, we, we talk more of an antisocial personality disorder, right? Mm. And you are looking at somebody who might be struggling interpersonally. By that I mean, so these people, when they relate to you, there's a sense of grandiosity. Uh, there's a sense of uh, they may manipulate. So there's a way they interact with people, which is inappropriate. And then you might also think of things like people who are struggling with an affective or there's a, there's an issue with how they relate with emotions. So there's an affective part that's problematic. Mm. A lack of remorse, a shallow effect, a lack of empathy, which explains why when, you know, when people are struggling you are not able to respond to how they feel. We also look at uh, things like lifestyle. So, if you see the story of somebody who's a serial murderer or somebody with an antisocial personality disorder, um, we are looking at people with low levels of arousal. So, that makes a person then want to engage in activities that are extreme uh, mm. for, for a thrill. Uh, they might be then impulsive um they they seek stimulation so there's a lifestyle they they risk a lot and so because of how they are wired in a sense and then of course there's an antisocial aspect in that when you tell the story or look at how they grew up there are stories about you know behavioral problems in school truancy um they used to they got in trouble a lot Uh, i mean the big one i remember when you were going to school. Mm. They used to talk about people who are cruel to animals. And so mm. you'll see a history like that. So people with those kind of aspects are exhibiting traits of someone who might be then able to uh, be, become a serial murderer, serial killer. So we, we look at things like that.
1: And I think it's really important when we discuss traits like this, that people may start to identify these in people they know and love or perhaps less likely, in themselves. So we must frame this all around the importance of looking at mental health challenges without judgment.
0: Cases like these tend to garner a lot of interest and a lot of attention on mental health and mental illness. One of the more popular discussions in such cases is that of a perpetrator's mental state and any underlying mental health issues that could have clued us in to the unfortunate outcomes. Before giving my opinion on what I believe Rosemary's mental state may have been, I want to emphasize the fact that people with mental illnesses should not be immediately regarded as dangerous or having criminal intent. According to an entry in the National Library of Medicine titled Psychiatric Illness and Criminality, People with mental illness are more likely to be a victim of violent crime than the perpetrator. The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration of America states that people with severe mental illnesses are over 10 times more likely to be victims of a violent crime and only 3-5% to 5% of violent acts can be attributed to individuals living with a serious mental illness. Mental health is something that affects everyone, and it's important to destigmatize these issues by having open and honest and non judgmental conversations. Based on what I have seen from Rosemary during her televised trial and the subsequent character descriptions given by her colleagues and family, I can assume that there was an element of antisocial personality disorder that drove her to commit her crimes and convinced her of her invincible status.
1: I think one of the reasons that people may have wondered about Rosemary and Lovu's mental health is because of the wildly performative behavior we saw from her during the trial. She swung from fits of tears when she spoke on the stand about some of the victims to performing for journalists and photographers at one point, only to throw water bottles at them at another point hamming it up for the cameras, and seeming to enjoy the attention they get in court is not uncommon for serial offenders, but Rosemary took it to a new level. We asked Tabang to comment on what might be going on for a person who behaves like this in a court where they're accused of such heinous crimes, when one would really expect far more subdued behaviour.
2: Yeah. So when we think about this this particular case and how one ought to behave in court, you know, when we look at the the, the kind of crimes um, that were committed, the kind of case, uh, the profile that we are looking at, mm-hmm. of course that, that behavior is surprising. But when we think about you know um, somebody who who is able to think of a plan, uh, organize that plan, and have somebody execute that plan, execute that plan herself. And what we might want to think about is, you know, a a problem or a difficulty with her emotions, a difficulty in reading the context, a shallow affect, a lack of empathy, um, and some attention seeking. So we observe that inappropriate behavior, but that is consistent with somebody who's able to commit such crimes because uh, they are not. It says something about the inability to read the room or even manipulate. Uh, the whole context and everything that's happening there. If I was in court,
1: right, accused of these really horrific deeds, and I was innocent of those accusations, I can guarantee you I would not be joking around and performing like Rosemary was. And I also can't help but wonder, how does someone fake the type of emotion that Rosemary did?
2: Um, It takes a very cunning person to fake emotions um, uh, for a person to malinger. But part of it is an attempt to mask, to put away, to misdirect what the truth is. Mm. And so there are a lot of people who have committed crimes. When you question them, they will swear they will swear they didn't do anything like that. They will display very explosive, very uh, dramatic expressions of emotions uh, to, to only find that they did Commit the crime So it, it could also be deflection But we're not talking about somebody In this particular case Somebody who's also Somebody who's not able to think Because we're talking about Somebody who was able to Become a police officer Get promoted Think of a plan mm. uh, Put people on life policies um, Find somebody to help her And um commit a crime, go and claim. So it, it's somebody who's able to to premeditate a plan, hatch a plan, but also I imagine even when it came to court, uh, it's somebody who might, you know, want to display or give us some sort of um, a misdirection. I would, I would say there's probably a plan um, to hide what's really going on. So for me, those things, they they go together because in court you have to look a certain way. So you are almost playing to the gallery or playing to the cameras. Mm-hmm. And, and we know people tend to to behave very strangely in front of cameras. Rosemary's court appearances
0: may one day be used in a criminology class. I think the way she navigated her legal troubles and the many characters she played throughout the investigation, trial and sentencing may be a useful tool in studying criminal behaviour and the personality traits of certain killers. Her court behavior was oftentimes eccentric, blowing kisses at the camera, telling journalists she dressed up for them and wanted to give them a show. These are all displays of incredible temerity that are then juxtaposed with her behavior on the stands. She gave her testimony as if she were a victim of poor police work a diligent sergeant who was wrongly accused of serial murder. It's almost as if she saw the court as a performance stage where she could get into character as an innocent while being questioned and cross-examined, only to take off the costume when she returned to the pews.
1: And I think that's such an important point, alluded to by both Tabang and Mfundo. That sense of Rosemary... Manipulating the situation to suit herself when it suited her. And when it no longer did, just casting off that identity she'd taken on. How much did she do that in her day-to-day life, I wonder? Who really knew the real Rosemary and Lovu? Was she real with her colleagues? With her partners? With her family? Did anyone know the real Rosemary? Although we might get a glimpse into the mind of someone who might be able to commit the types of crimes Rosemary did, it still doesn't answer the question, why? Because there are plenty of people out there who have the skills and capability to carry out a series like this, but they don't. And that gap. Between the ones who could, and the ones who do, consists of a myriad of touch points, including one of the most important, motive. In South African law, a prosecutor does not have to prove motive in court to win a criminal case. Motive is an important part of an investigation, because it helps to point to the people who might benefit from a crime, but it's not slam-dunk evidence because there might be multiple people who would benefit in the same way. So, although we desperately want to know why, we don't often get that answer. Even in Rosemary's case, where it seemed very clear that she was benefiting financially from these crimes, that doesn't seem, at least to me, to have been the main motive. She could have made money in many other criminal ways, that didn't involve killing people.
0: I believe there came a point during the commission of these crimes where the money was just a bonus. I think that particular moment came with the attempted murder of her sister Joyce and her children. Rosemary was not expecting an insurance payout for the death of her nieces and nephews. They were collateral damage, an obstacle in the way of her goal that she could easily get rid of. Based on how casually and callously she spoke of their intended murder, one can only assume that the simple fact of their death was her motive. It was something that she derived power and joy from.
1: So we wondered, what intrinsic motive could have been present here? Maybe power or control? And how did that fit in? With the person we know was convicted of these crimes and the position she held?
2: Yes. So I would say, you know, so when we think of somebody who has an anti social personality disorder, psychopathy, right? And in almost all the cases, we are also thinking of somebody, somebody with narcissism, which is a problem with self esteem. And so where somebody has a lack of empathy but also some level of grandiosity and some admiration. Therefore, if we think of it that way, we also think of somebody who, who might take pleasure from outwitting others, from manipulating others, from being able to uh, get away with something. So not only could the motive be uh, financial, but there's also a, a thrill in able in being able to commit something and getting away with it and outsmarting other people because um, that is an important thing. The other thing I think about is uh, when we look at one's childhood, because people who commit such crimes, many of them also have adverse childhood mm. um, experiences where they may have been disempowered themselves. Uh, some adult abused them. And, you know, then they grow up to be an adult who wants to take back, in a sense, their power or to exert their power, because at some point, They felt helpless, and they might want to make others feel the same way they they felt.
1: And that insight from Tabang got us thinking about something else. He quite rightly says that we often see the elements of a serial offender's childhood playing a role in their crimes. But that was really hard to see with Rosemary. In the last episode of Rosemary's Hit List, We even heard that no one could find any specific incidents of abuse as such in Rosemary's background. But I think we miss something really important here if we don't acknowledge that she grew up in a deeply impoverished background.
0: Knowing that the environment you grow up in heavily influences who you become, it's important to acknowledge the role that poverty may have played in this case. The financial aspect of this case is an indication of what people may be willing to do to get out of poverty. Rosemary having grown up in poverty is not an excuse for her crimes but perhaps it can serve to explain her actions and it should be used as a tool to assess how this may have affected her psychology. Poverty is a stressful situation and people living in poverty are more likely to be exposed to trauma as a result. This constant stress and trauma exposure may lead to being desensitized and thus more likely to engage in risky behavior and commit violent crimes.
1: Now, it may sound bizarre to say that being poor as a child may affect you in this way as an adult. But remember, we aren't talking about you. We're talking about a person who already had a very specific psychological makeup that didn't help her to lean toward what we might term normal behavior. If you put a feather on an empty scale, it doesn't move. Put that same feather on a scale that's already hugely weighted and it may just plummet with disastrous consequences.
2: We have to consider somebody's personality and their context, in a, in a context where you are able to you know, switch on your TV and you watch other people living a particular kind of life, mm. um, a life that you can't attain yourself or through a police officer's salary. Mm-hmm. And it can be, I mean, some people have used words like violent. It could be like a violent experience, to grow up in that kind of context and to want those things for yourself. And I think there was a theme around gambling Mm. and owing money. Mm. And so how do you, um, if you have such desires or such a struggle as well, how does one then fix that? Except maybe through cutting corners, depending where you grew up and the kind of personality that you have. So Mm. I, I think it does, you know, the context, one does not necessarily have to be abused See physically, but you can grow up in a space where you feel something is wrong with the environment, which can give you a lot of shame. You might move in society or in the world with this with this burden, a sense of alienation, Mm. which you might want to correct uh, if you have the means to.
1: Again, this is not intended to excuse anything, because there is no excuse for what Rosemary and Lovu did. But this case has presented us with so many really important insights and possibilities that we have to consider if we really want to understand and maybe prevent future cases. Of course, another element of this case that stands out is the fact that Rosemary and Ndlovu is a woman. Female serial killers, and even one-off murderers for that matter, are far more rare than their male counterparts. I'll be honest, I sometimes wonder if female serial killers really are that rare, or if we're just better at getting away with it for longer than male serial killers.
0: Serial killers can be regarded as an interest of mine as that is where I usually focus most of my research on, and they are the cases that I tend to be drawn to. As a result, I have been exposed to many characteristics, similarities, and differences of different demographics of serial killers. I have found that male serial killers are more likely to be sexually motivated in their crimes than their female counterparts. One of the only female serial killer cases I have covered is that of Daisy Damalka. Daisy Damalka was a South African serial killer who murdered her son, as well as two of her husbands for insurance money, which is eerily similar to Rosemary's case, as Rosemary is now dubbed the insurance killer for her crimes. There's relatively little coverage of female serial killers as compared to male serial killers, although I don't think it's because women are better at covering their crimes than men. I think the methods employed in their murders is a better explanation for the so-called murder gap. Men are more likely to commit a violent murder and women's methods often involve poisonings which take longer. It was rather unusual that Rosemary used murder and specifically violent murder to commit her crimes when the goal was thought to be financial gain. She probably would have raised less suspicion if murder hadn't been her primary method of getting rid of her victims and witnesses
1: we wondered how, from a psychological perspective, men and women may be different, and how that comes out in the way they commit crimes, with women often seeming to be less likely to commit really violent murders.
2: I was reflecting, about, you know, reflecting on how men and women you know, go, go about you know, committing crimes, and one of the things that came to my mind was, how we express aggression so when you look at how men and women express aggression men are because of men's physical structure aggression might be easily meted out by you know hitting punching destroying so it's it's an outward expression but if you're a, if you're a woman there's a limitation in that in that women's aggression is not necessarily physical it's largely things like you know character assassination gossip, to destroy somebody verbally. So I, I thought of that, you know, so men and women's aggression is different. The, the second thing um, I was thinking about is, you know, when I reflect on women we, we who, uh when you look at men and women who complete suicide, hmm. men go about choosing more violent ways. So they will, they will use guns. They will use uh ropes. They'll use cars. They'll use something drastic. Women would take pills. And I think Thinking of that, you know, the aggression and how uh, people would choose methods to complete suicide, one might reasonably think that when it comes to murdering, um, a woman, it's very difficult to go and, and, and kill somebody because you need some sort of strength and force and dispose the body. So the the methods then a female serial killer might employ might not necessarily be um, like that. They might be a bit more cunning. um, When you look at documentaries about female serial killers, it's like they they committed the crimes against people they knew who Mm. were close to them through things like uh, they poisoned them. And even if it was violent, it was in a way that she was able to do it, and um, so th- there's a, a difference in expression. You know, those are sort of the things I think we have to think about when we compare how men and women are uh, then commit these kind of heinous crimes.
1: I said to that's that I think we even see that general trend along gender lines when we deal with trauma. Men will often extend that trauma outward toward others, while women are more likely to self-harm and contain that trauma within.
2: Yes, I think that that's a beautiful link. You know, we we also see it even when we diagnose children, we'll say the boys have antisocial personality. So the boys are struggling with behavioral problems and the girls are a little bit more depressed. And so I, I think... We, men and women then express themselves in different ways in the world. And so if we apply it here, then the, 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 the male, male serial killers would be then violent outwardly, very dramatic. But with, with females, it would be um, sort of coercive, um, manipulative, you know, slow, stealthy kind of approach that people might not see coming. Because also the the other reason I think why a lot of females would be also able to escape with crimes is that we don't, ex- society doesn't expect that of women. Mm-hmm. We we don't expect women to be uh, manipulative and sinister. It's not the story that we told. We have this Hollywood image of what does a serial killer look like? You know, this bad looking person, but um, a serial killer could be charming and caring and seem kind. And, uh, uh, but, they might be hiding something very dangerous. As we started
1: to end off our interview with Tabang, we asked him for any insights he might have on our next topic. And the final episode, we will explore how cultural elements around this case impacted the crimes and the victims. And since we're talking about psychology and mental health here, we asked Tabang how, in his experience as a mental health practitioner, He's seen culture, lived experiences, and mental health interact in South African communities.
2: The interesting thing when I think about mental health and, you know, culture and the things that I've observed is that one of the things for me that I found interesting is, is how we talk about what we are observing, you know, so if somebody is struggling, mm-hmm. uh, very often people would say, uh, this, this person, it's, it's a calling that they are struggling with. But if you are trained, like the way we are trained, you, you start thinking, but isn't this, you know, um, a psychotic episode? Is this not bipolar? So there's the way we talk about what we are observing, how we diagnose a problem, right? And there are those who are culturally, I say, you know, there are those who are experts and they are well-informed and they are, they are able to make a distinction. They, they will even tell a person, they'll say, you know, we don't necessarily think this is a spiritual thing. You need You need to go consult the psychiatrist, the psychologist you need. This is a mental health thing. It's not a spiritual thing. So you'll get decent, responsible uh, practitioners, cultural practitioners who will say things like that. And then, of course, you'll get those who are pretending, those who want money, and they'll look at things like that. They'll, they'll tell a person, okay, so this, what we are observing is that, um, you know, the uh, it's you are being bewitched. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the calling. This is, um, you know, something that you need to lean into, as opposed to you need to get help for. So you you get, uh, people who, who reason that way about what we are saying. So that's one of the things that uh, I've observed. The the other things um, I've observed is when when people are delusional, mm-hmm. and sometimes culturally, people also struggle to kind of decipher whether. Um, these delusions Is this like a delusion Where somebody needs to be medicated Or is this somebody with a special gift Seeing visions And So I've seen that people also struggle To kind of explain things like that Because there's so much There's so much information So many explanations about it But I, I do know as, as far as grief There is an issue when When somebody's murdered right Because you can't even Even when it's a funeral You, you are not even allowed to come in the yard That a person who dies in the street, someone who dies a very cruel death, has Mm -hmm. to turn by the gate, uh, lest they bring in some bad spirits. There's a whole thing about the grieving process that if you get murdered, you are found with missing body parts or you're badly injured. Mm -hmm. The, The family now deals with you in a particular way, which in fact affects how they grieve because you are the special person to them. And then in a way, they at that important time in their life, they have to bury you, but also protect themselves and distance themselves from you because then they're not sure what's going on, you know? So there's a whole thing that uh, people must do. And when we look how people suffer and how people die, um, what people like Rosemary and people who've committed touch crimes, they make it difficult for the family to adjust. And then again, with the grief, you there's also a cleansing that must happen and so when somebody has died of course people have to be cleansed and so so those things um there's some nuance in there that that affects people in how they heal how they move on how they adjust from what they have experienced and this impact
1: goes on for generations It doesn't just stop with the immediate people experiencing the crime or loss at that time. Those ripples spread out almost endlessly.
2: You know, there's a disruption in the family in that um, if if you're a mom and um, you commit crimes, then um, the family must do something, say, with your children or after the funeral so that the family gets disrupted. And there's like uh there's anger and their family feuds, family separate. And so it, it does go into generations where the family is never the same again because of the actions of of one person, and then there's blaming, and then there's anger, and then there's guilt. Mm-hmm. And so people struggle with that. So we, we see the crimes, we see the um, the case, which often helps when people do get arrested. And they get sent to jail, families do feel that there's a sense of justice. Mm. Otherwise, it becomes this open wound where you you feel like uh, you are a you have you are a victim and there was no justice and people just struggle from that point on. Life is never really the same.
1: I was pleased to hear from Tabang that there does seem to be a move toward incorporating an element of cultural awareness in training mental health practitioners in South Africa. And I think that's vital. Because really, it doesn't matter whether your beliefs are the same as someone else's. That person's beliefs make up part of who they are. They are deeply ingrained into their identity. So if we hope to help with mental health then there needs to be an understanding that this person sitting in front of me is a sum of all of their parts and not just the parts that someone may have seen in a textbook. And Sabang has one final, really important insight to leave us with.
2: When we we come across cases that don't seem to make sense, uh, what we want to do is actually slow down and try and Understand what's really going on, because a lot of us live with people who are struggling and but because we are so busy, we, we are quick to say, "Oh, this doesn't make sense, or oh, we are not able to notice, right? So maybe you have a rosemary in your life, but we don't notice things like that because we, we have this idea that you know bad people and bad things look a particular way. Mm-hmm. but I think we need to just slow down in our environments and really um, see how we relate to, to each other. Uh, I think if we do things like that, uh, we'll be able to quickly identify uh, problematic relationships and people.
1: I do hope you've enjoyed episode three of Rosemary's Hitlist. The fourth and final episode will be dropping in your feed shortly. To be sure you don't miss it, hit the subscribe or follow button on Spotify or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Next time
0: on Rosemary's Hitlist, the official companion podcast.
1: South Africa is made up of a wide range of different cultures and belief systems. These beliefs shouldn't ever bleed over into a case like this one, but they do. Culture, is almost a separate character in this case, and one that has deeply impacted victims, the perpetrator, and those telling the story in the aftermath.